Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Dr. Michael DeBose, or Mike for short. Mike comes to us from D. Stafford & Associates, as well as NACOP, which is the National Association of Cleary Compliance Officers and Professionals, where he works as the Director of Research and Strategic Initiatives. In this role, he provides a variety of consulting, training, and technical assistance related to institutional compliance for the Cleary Act, as well as the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act. He also serves as an adjunct faculty member in New England College's Master of Science in Campus Public Safety Administration. Dr. DeBose is a student conduct officer by training, where previously he worked as the director for student conduct at Old Dominion University and the assistant director at the University of Vermont. He holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Millersville University, a master of education in higher education and student affairs administration from the University of Vermont, and his PhD is from Old Dominion University. His dissertation examined the student conduct administrator knowledge of statistical reporting obligations of the Cleary Act, and he was recognized by ASCA as the 2015 Dissertation of the Year Award. If you'd like to read something that Dr. DeBose has authored, you can see a co-authored book chapter of his in the Reframing Campus Conflict Student Conduct Practice Through a Social Justice Lens book, and he also has authored a number of white papers for NACOP that focus on Cleary and the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act compliance. He's also got contributions to journals including the Security Journal, the Journal of of Cleary Compliance Officers and Professionals, Campus Safety Magazine, and Academic Perspectives in Higher Education. So this conversation will really focus on Cleary Act and its intersection with student conduct. Hope you enjoy the episode. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in July of 2017, so any technical guidance or any clarifications that are offered by Dr. DeBose in this episode are up to date as of July of 2017. Also, just a friendly reminder that our campus annual security reports are due this October 1st, so that's later this week. So good luck to for those of you who are preparing those for your institution, and for those of you who have not yet had the opportunity to participate in preparing one of these reports, I'm hoping that this episode will give you a little bit of insight into the complex nature of how we do and do not count Cleary statistics. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Mike DeBose. Mike is the Director of Research and Strategic Initiatives with NACOP, and NACOP is the National Association of Cleary Compliance Officers and Professionals. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Jill. Pleasure to join you. Thanks so much for chatting with us today. Uh, I'm really excited to kind of get a different take on student conduct from the Cleary side of the house, and I think you started your journey in conduct, isn't that right? I did. For uh, a couple of years, I was at the University of Vermont, where I was completing my master's degree with a graduate assistantship in the student conduct office, which turned into a interim and then more permanent appointment as an assistant director. And then in 2007, I transitioned to be the director of student conduct and academic integrity at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, until 2014, when I made the transition to the National Association of Cleary Compliance Officers and Professionals. And somewhere in there you finished a PhD, right? Yeah, yeah, somewhere somewhere in there I, I sure did. It was actually uh, just a couple of months officially before I, I left the institution. 
at ODU. Yep, yep. And Mike, your dissertation is well known in many student conduct circles as kind of a reference point. I know that one of our Gearing faculty referenced it and used you as a resource uh, in teaching Cleary Basics for conduct professionals. Can you tell us a little bit about that original research? Yeah, absolutely. I think hearing about the the genesis of it might might be helpful too. So I really knew virtually nothing about the Cleary Act prior to about 2011 when uh, Old Dominion decided to hire D. Stafford and Associates to conduct an independent audit of our Cleary Act compliance. And so as part of that, I had a day that was set aside to meet with the consultant and, and sort of talk about how our department put together our Cleary statistics that we then provided to the police department. And I thought, well, I certainly don't need a day to do this because I basically go into our homegrown Microsoft Access database, pull a report that somebody created prior to my arrival at Old Dominion, and it, it spits out three numbers uh, of referrals and I provide that information to the police lieutenant that compiles statistics. And on a good year, those numbers would be copied and pasted into the statistics chart. And I thought, why do I need a day with this person? And uh, I quickly learned why I needed a day, because what I realized was that there was this entire body of knowledge that I was supposed to know as a student conduct practitioner that I just didn't know that, that had a direct impact on our institution's ability to be in compliance with at least the statistical reporting piece of Cleary. And, and so that was a pretty jarring professional moment for me. And it happened at a time when I was beginning my doctoral studies. And so, uh, of course, the, the tyranny of the immediate made me try to do everything I could to focus on getting our crime statistics correct as to, to the best of my abilities based on the lessons learned during our audit. And then I started to reach out to Dolores Stafford and, and attend classes and trainings. And I, I started to appreciate that I, I probably wasn't the only person in the field that missed the memo on how important the student conduct apparatus is to helping the institution publish accurate crime statistics. And so because I was, you know, sort of moonlighting as a doctoral student in the evening when I wasn't, you know, at my full-time job, I decided that I was going to take this on as a, a topic for my dissertation. And it just so happened that one of the faculty members at Old Dominion is Dennis Gregory, mm -hmm. who uh, you know, has done a considerable amount of research, uh, particularly in partnership with Steve Janosik at Virginia Tech, on the Cleary Act and, and really sort of looking at what, what do different constituent groups uh, understand or believe about the Cleary Act and its effectiveness in meeting its goals. And, and so it sort of occurred to me, it was this, you know, incredible constellation of forces that I had a, a, a past, past president of then ASJA on the faculty who has a, a line of research in Cleary Act as I'm coming to understand how important that is for my life. And so I decided this is it. I'm going to seize this moment. And, and selfishly, I'm going to figure out, was I the only one that missed the memo on this issue? <laughs> uh, so I decided to develop a, a survey. And uh, the, the survey was really conceptually quite simple. I, I developed 10 scenarios 
that I thought would be fairly commonplace scenarios that might run across a student conduct administrator's desk or inbox. And and I I chose scenarios because I, I wanted to see if the student conduct administrator would read that scenario. Of course, they're going to have their student conduct hat on, right? And they're going to be thinking about, are there sufficient allegations of institutional policy such that we should move our process forward? And how should we do that? And what's the most effective approach for doing that? And and all of those really core competencies and the things you want to be thinking about as a student conduct administrator. But I was more interested in, as they're reviewing those reports, do they see the potential statistical reporting obligations that inherently reside within them? And so I developed these 10 scenarios and uh, I, you know, I was just trying to focus on could student conduct administrators read these scenarios and accurately classify and count any offenses that are depicted in these scenarios, which would then have to be included in the institution's crime statistics. So I wrote them in a way that only these scenarios would be included if the student conduct person correctly classified and counted the case, meaning it, it wasn't scenarios that either came from the police department that the police department would have already known about, or it, it wasn't ones that anyone else could classify because of, of how we define what it means to be referred for disciplinary action. You know, really the student conduct office would have to ensure that particular students met that definition. So, so I, I, I with a blessing of the ASCA research committee, I, I sent out my survey to all professional members of ASCA. And uh, I'll never forget, it was uh, February 2014 when I got my data back and, and the survey closed. I was actually at a uh, Office of Violence Against Women uh, training. Our Old Dominion had, had earned a grant. And so in the evenings, I was starting to crunch my numbers, and I was somewhat astounded at what I found. In essence, what I found was that of the eight scenarios that ultimately made my dissertation's analysis – you know, if if you don't correctly classify and count an offense for Clery Act purposes, we know that is tantamount to noncompliance, and it's underreporting of crime statistics. And the Secretary of Education has has ruled that you know underreporting one offense constitutes a violation of the Clery Act and could be uh, you know warranting of a maximum possible civil fine. So it was relevant that I found that 99.3% of the professionals who completed my survey were unable to accurately classify and count all eight of the scenarios that were ultimately part of the analysis. 99%. 993 or 0.4%. That's intense. Um, it, yeah. And I, so, you know, I, I remembered... Someone that I don't know that she knows this, but I, I considered her a mentor while I was at Old Dominion. Her name's Janet Katz. She was an associate dean in the College of Arts and Letters. Someone that I, I developed a relationship with through our threat assessment team. And I, I remember she would she would give me sort of nuggets of wisdom throughout my dissertation process. And one of the things that that she was well known for saying is that people tend to study their weakness uh, when they get to the dissertation phase. And I can certainly say that was true for me. And, and I mentioned earlier that I, I wanted to know if I had missed the memo on this issue. I think what my dissertation affirmed for me is that I didn't miss the memo because the memo never went out. You know, there's, there's no way that 99.3% of student conduct administrators, whom, you know, I believe are probably 
some of the leaders in the field mm-hmm. who are ultimately involved with the association, you know, there there's just no way that um, this many folks cannot know something that is so innately connected to institutions' compliance efforts. And so, so that really made me wonder, well, how can this be? And, you know, I, I reflected on my own experience, and, and I thought about, you know, uh, all of the offerings that I, you know, had the opportunity to take advantage of through the association or through other trainings, through other associations, and even my, even my graduate school coursework. You know, one of my favorite classes as a master's student was a legal issues class. I'm sure the Cleary Act came up but never to the degree of nuance that would, you know, have a, a student learning how to classify and count an offense. And truly, that would be, that would be overkill for most students. And so I started to appreciate that, that really, although 99% of people were unable to perform this function, and it's an essential function, I started to appreciate that it's, it's uh, you know, not, not really their fault, right? And it's not really the fault of, of anyone. But I thought, what, a, what an extraordinary data point um, that, that I, we can now look at and think, how can we make this better? And, and so as, you know, as I was completing my dissertation, I, was, I had been consulting for a couple of years at that point part-time with Dee Stafford and Associates. And, and I was primarily working with student conduct programs on really enhancing their capacity to get the best possible, most accurate crime statistics out of their various records management systems. And, and there was an incredible amount of learning for me along the way, but, but I started to realize, you know, there's an opportunity to really help the field in a different way. And, and I, I approached Dolores, who's the president and CEO of D. Stafford and Associates, and I said, you know, if there's ever an opportunity to work for you full time, uh, I hope you would think of me, and I'd be remiss not to tell you that I would be interested. And she said, finish your dissertation and let's talk. So uh, the day of my defense, my wife and my parents were in the room and, and watched me defend successfully. I stepped out, and on the way to, to go celebrate at lunch, I called Dolores and I said, let's meet. And so uh, a couple of weeks later, we met, and uh, my position was sort of born as a result of that. And I thought this is really a chance for me to take the things that I love and sort of merge them together. And so one of the things I love about what I do now with NACOP is that I get to work with student affairs practitioners and specifically student conduct administrators and help them understand all the same things that six years ago I didn't know I didn't know either and and sort of walk that journey with them. And my dissertation helps provide an anchoring point uh, you know, we, we love data, appropriately so, in the field. And so I was grateful to have the opportunity to pursue my dissertation in that particular topic and then have it have such a direct impact to my day-to-day work. Where do you see conduct officers kind of missing the memo the most? You know, I think there's maybe a couple places. And and I I, I, I will say from the outset that I think you know, I kind of divide Cleary in my mind into two eras. There's the pre-VAWA era and there's the post-VAWA era. Because I think presently, where I think conduct administrators are doing much better in sort of the post-VAWA world is, you know, there's been extraordinary awareness since the 2011 Dear Colleague letter from the Office for Civil Rights about sexual violence and procedures on campus. And obviously, the Violence Against Women Act, when it modified the Cleary Act, it, it added a lot of pretty clear 
black and white letter law requirements about certain procedures and steps institutions must take and, and disclose as it relates to those offenses. So I think student conduct administrators are, are, have, have a lot of energy in that era and are making great strides in enhancing their programs and capacities to respond in a compliant and effective way. But I still think we need to not lose sight of everything in the pre-VAWA era. You know, it was 1998 when institutions had to begin disclosing referrals for campus disciplinary action. We're, we're coming up on 20 years of, of having to do that. And, you know, I think that's an area, and, and my dissertation highlights this, where we need to do better. So part of that is in helping to uh, have practitioners change their mindset about when they're looking at reports, right? B- because sometimes the, the lens through which you need to view those reports from a Clery Act perspective is about whether sufficient information to allege that certain crimes exist. That's not the same lens that a sort of classically trained student conduct practitioner is looking at that same report through. And, and so I think helping people adopt a mindset and develop a knowledge base that will enable them to really issue spot. You know, I don't think that it's it's reasonable given the various demands on student conduct administrators. You know, they're, they're pulled in so many different directions. Clery is often a thing that gets done in the summer. You know, that's that's inherently a challenge uh, because it's, it should be something that's done throughout the year. But I think if if we can get sort of a a core group of student conduct administrators who we increase their knowledge where they can issue spot and and then work more collaboratively with their campus police or public safety to get that entity the information that it needs to ensure the institution's in compliance. And I think we'll have gone a a long way. Um, I, I think one of the challenges that sits with student conduct administrators as well is that, you know, there's there's a general over-reliance on the electronic records management systems that they use, right? So whether it's a homegrown system or a a third-party software-as-a-solution kind of system, none of these systems, and I, I underscore none of these systems, can ever develop an algorithm or a reporting module that will put you in compliance with the, the Clery Act and, and make sure that your crime statistics are correct. You know, ultimately, there still has to be some human intervention where a knowledgeable person is reading reports and understands the rules and the exceptions to the rules in terms of counting and classifying offenses. So, you know, I I think sometimes well-meaning and well-intended practitioners believe that based on the charges maybe that they have in their records management systems, their systems have a higher degree of sophistication than they actually do in terms of helping translate their caseloads into accurate crime statistics, because it's just not that simple. So let's get into some specifics then. And I'm just going to use some examples of things that I hear often from conduct officers. Things like, I had five students referred into the conduct process for underage alcohol consumption in the residence halls, but only three out of the five were found responsible. So how many Cleary statistics do I count towards liquor law violations referred for disciplinary actions? Great, great, great question. So Let's back up and, and look at a couple of foundations that need to be set in order to answer that question. When, when you have to classify referrals, referrals were reporting only for liquor, drug, and weapon law violations. Right out of the gate, unlike 
any other Cleary Act crime, arrests and referrals are different because arrests and referrals for liquor, drug, and weapon violations are the only types of crimes where what you do to the person impacts whether or not an offense counts, right? If there's a liquor law violation, but no individuals are referred or arrested, it's the, it's the tree that falls in the woods. The law doesn't require you to count that. One of the things that's also unique is, is that institutions have to conduct an assessment of their state and local laws and ordinances that relate to the Cleary Act categories of liquor law violations, drug law violations, and weapon law violations. And this is because if you, if you read the handbook or, or, or you read the statute of the regulations, you'll see that we're actually using FBI definitions for those three categories. But inherent in the FBI's definitions is deference to whatever your state and local laws and ordinances say about those things, right? So for example, you need to know if you're in a state where a 19-year-old who is not physically holding or otherwise in possession of alcohol could be regarded as being in possession of alcohol under the auspices of sort of internal possession laws, right? Because if you're in a state where it, it is unlawful for a person to possess alcohol, including, you know, sort of using their body as a container, then the answer about whether they are countable may be different than if you're in a state where there is no internal possession equivalency, right? And in some states, state law doesn't expressly prohibit consumption of alcohol. It's just possession. And, and so this is where you really have to get kind of granular about what are the laws and ordinances that apply to your specific institution and your specific campus where these students have been referred. From the outset, there needs to be uh, some type of assessment that your police or public safety staff probably is going to take the lead on so that you know which violations of law to count. The next step is determining how much information do we need to trigger one of those violations in the first place, right? So there has to be some groundwork that's laid. But going back to your example, so we've got five students who appear to be documented in an incident report that says that, uh, you know, underage students were consuming alcohol. I'm going to be interested in what specific information exists in the incident report. And, and here's where the quality of the incident report really matters. If student conduct folks have the opportunity to be involved in training, especially training paraprofessional staff like resident assistants or resident advisors in writing incident reports, this is where you can really help your institution's clery compliance efforts. Because once you know which laws and ordinances apply, and, and what amount of information you need to establish any of those law violations, like underage possession, you can encourage and train RAs to write down the right information in their reports. Because ultimately, in a Department of Education audit situation, they're going to be looking at the incident reports upon which you base your evaluation about whether there were any Clery Act crimes, and if so, how many to count. That report is sufficiently detailed and tells you, for example, that, you know, for four of those students, they were not observed to be in possession of alcohol. They did not live in that space. They did not display any signs of intoxication. Well, 
that might be extremely relevant for deciding has a law violation been established for maybe only one student or you know, all five. That level of detail is important. And obviously that level of detail can also help you in your, in your student conduct duties as you decide how to process that case through your institution's procedures. You know, I, I think the answer to your question, it's a deceptively simple and extremely important question. It relies upon a, a, a couple of things. The, the other thing that I think is important is, you know, we've, we've got to look at, you know, one question is, has a clear reportable law violation been alleged in this report? You know, that's a key question. And that's a question that we really need to look at for each individual person documented in the narrative, because for referrals, we're counting the number of people who have been referred for a liquor, drug, or weapon law violation. Once we sort of have our arms wrapped around the law piece and whether a crime has occurred, we can look to the definition of what it means to be referred for disciplinary action. And here's the really good news for clery compliance professionals and, and student conduct administrators that are relied upon to make some of these judgments. If we're talking about a student because you read their name in a report, they inherently meet the definition of being referred for disciplinary action. Because in 2011, the Department of Education shifted gears on this issue. And since that time, they have said that the, the mere identification of a student by name in a report that an official of the institution, such as a student conduct administrator, reviews is enough in the Department of Education's mind to say that the institution has now initiated a disciplinary action. And because the student conduct unit has established a record of that action, whether it's in a hard copy file or whether it's an entry in a, a electronic records management system, they now meet the definition of referred for disciplinary action. We, we're only counting people who meet that definition of referred when the impetus for the referral was a clear reportable liquor, drug, or weapon law violation. So this is one of the places where sometimes it feels like Cleary provides in, an inaccurate pers you know, perspective about the state of affairs as it relates to liquor, drug, and weapons issues on campus. Because ultimately, whether the person's found responsible or not responsible is completely immaterial to whether or not you will count that person in your crime statistics. If a report, for example, is not clear, and, and this happens in the handbook, so in the in the Handbook for Campus Safety and Security Reporting, which was published in June of 2016. They, they now include a couple of examples where they say, you know, for example, that, you know, maybe 15 students are underage and are present at a location on campus where underage students are drinking in violation of law. And in the example, they say that, you know, the, the RA submits that incident report and the RA supervisor reviews the report and determines that five of those students were not consuming alcohol and were not violating any liquor laws. Then they say the disciplinary process continues for the, for the other 10, and the handbook says count all 15 of those students as liquor law violation referrals in your crime statistics. And on its face, that seems absurd, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially knowing that the, in this example, the RA supervisor has determined that there were no violations of law. But the key thing to keep in mind here is that that doesn't matter because what matters is ultimately how has this been framed in the narrative of the report that prompts the subsequent action of student conduct administrators? What level of detail is or is not there that will allow you to evaluate each person referred 
to make a decision as to whether or not they should be counted in the crime statistics or not. What we know now after engaging with a handbook more about that problematic example is, uh, excuse me, the, the help desk, not, not the handbook, is what we now know is that they hope that that example highlights that if the initial information in the report doesn't adequately distinguish between the people who were involved in the law violations and those who were not, and all you know is that they were there and a law violation that's clear reportable was occurring, you should treat them all for statistical reporting purposes as though they were participating in a law violation. So that's a pretty long answer to your question, but, but it highlights actually why when student conduct administrators start to dig into this, I actually believe that classifying and counting referrals are among the hardest offenses to classify and count among all of the offenses in the Clery Act. I actually think counting referrals is probably the hardest. And unfortunately, that responsibility often falls to the practitioners that have the least access to training on that issue and the least amount of knowledge to do it effectively. It's time for the Public Policy and Legislative Issues Committee update. We bring you greetings from the PPLI. This is Joanna Green. And Preston Croto. If you had an opportunity to tune in on a former podcast, you may have heard, as part of our committee's commitment to provide an ASCA membership with important updates on public policy and legislative issues, we will offer a few minutes doing various podcasts on a topic that is currently in the news or has an impact on your campus. This information may have been shared through a new piece of legislation, it could have been mentioned during a political speech, or it was just a news story. As always, our aim is not to align ourselves with any particular party or politician, but rather offer some commentary on the issue as it relates to our work in student conduct and higher education. For this edition, we will be discussing the importance and impact of clear reporting on college campuses. Many listeners have an understanding of the requirements and implications, but might like additional information. As stated by the Cleary Center, the Cleary Act requires colleges and universities that receive federal funding to publish a public report. This is known as the Annual Security Report, or an ASR. This ASR must include statistics of campus crime for the preceding three calendar years, plus details about efforts taken to improve campus safety. This is to ensure that steps are being taken to improve campus safety and security. This is a topic that is discussed throughout the year on various campuses and require proper reporting procedures. You should ensure that you build good relationships with reporting parties on your individual campus to aid in streamlining your processes, policies, and procedures. An area that some institutions may struggle with is timely warnings. When a clearly reportable crime occurs, campus officials are required to evaluate if there is a serious or ongoing threat the campus community to determine if a timely warming needs to be issued to the campus. In the event this occurs, institutions generally have protocols in place to send emails, text messages, and or automated calls. A couple of more prominent cases related to Clery fines include Penn State and Eastern Michigan University. You can easily find additional information about these institutions and the circumstances which led to their fine. The Department of Education has announced the increase in fines for violations of reporting. This can have a significant impact on colleges and universities as well as their operations. 
and a recent report from Politico suggests that there may be a shift on Cleary complaints, as the Trump administration appears to be working more quickly through complaints that institutions of higher education aren't appropriately reporting these crimes, including sexual violence. These complaints allege that colleges and universities may be violating Cleary, which requires reporting and prevention. The responses from the Trump administration to these complaints appear to be shorter and more succinct than previous responses, which may be a result of the typical length of time it takes to resolve a complaint, which could be up to five years. So how does this relate to you as a student conduct administrator? It is important to review your institutional policies and code of conduct to ensure you have policies in place to capture reportable behavior. It is also important to work closely with your campus security authorities, or CSAs, university housing staff, Department of Public Safety, and other areas responsible for reporting to ensure you are properly sharing information. Institutions should also ensure that their clear geography is updated as well and provide a quick guide with the referral resource for those who need it. That is it for this update from PPLI. If you would like to learn more or perhaps join the committee, please feel free to contact Preston or myself, and we will be happy to speak with you. Until next time, take care and be kind to others. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, PPLI. So I'm going to ask you a bit of a controversial question in that if the Cleary statistics in your opinion, are not necessarily representing accurate pictures of what happens on campus. And we also know that a lot of the research research shows that people aren't actually reading them. What's the point? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think one of the things to keep in mind about the research is that really all the research that I've seen about the utility of data in the annual security report, including crime statistics, really was conducted before Virginia Tech. I think keeping that time frame in mind that we're before Virginia Tech, it's before Northern Illinois, it's, it's before the 2011 Dear Colleague letter and the heightened awareness, not only amongst campus officials, but students and some you know, waves of activism that have brought, you know, sprung forth from that. I, so I do believe people are accessing this information and using it more than what past research shows. I think one of the gaps that we have right now is that we don't have any replications uh, using recent data to really see has the needle moved in the way that I believe it has moved. You know, one of the things that the Department of Education actually said in the audit of Penn State is, and, and you know, I think listeners to the podcast will have to form their own beliefs about how accurate this is or isn't. But the Department of Education believes that the Cleary Act is not simply a collection of regulatory hurdles for schools to negotiate. You know, they said in the Penn State letter that it represents a carefully constructed system of campus safety and prevention approaches and precepts. You know, they believe that any uh, failure to comply with, with the act deprives people, both current and prospective students and employees, of essential information to make decisions. Contrary to what the research says, the Department of Education believes that you know, any violation, or whether purposeful or not, has, has a serious depriv- deprivation effect on people. To answer your question pointedly, I mean, I do believe it matters. I do believe people look at this data. I don't believe it is nearly as widely read and, and considered 
as we might like it to be. But but I can tell you, you know, I I have a very low tech way of monitoring what's happening in the query world. I set up Google alerts. Uh, so I have a Google alert on the phrase Query Act, and I'm stunned at the frequency with which I am finding student newspapers that are looking at the annual security report data and making public records requests to see if they can get access to reports and sort of verify the institution's crime statistics that were reported to see if they're accurate. And I'm stunned at the number of student newspapers and, and editorial boards who are writing editorials in response to crime log entries that their police or public safety are, are posting, or they're expressing concern about a gap between the number of recent offenses of a certain type on the crime log and the absence of any campus-wide notifications bringing you know, attention to the campus community about these recently reported issues. You know, I, I, it, it may be more anecdotal, but I do believe people are looking at this. Uh, it may be more from a, a uh, you know, there's probably a couple of different lenses people are looking at this through, whether it's somewhat of a, of a watchdog lens or just a, a concerned community member lens. But, but ultimately, you know, there's, there's the obvious reason why you've got to do this right. And that's because, you know, somewhere along the way, your institution, like most others in the country, decided that they wanted to make financial aid available to their students. And so, you know, you, you, your president signed the program participation agreement where you've said, in addition to complying with the Cleary Act and the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act, there's a whole litany of other responsibilities that we're going to agree to take on so that we can support our students in accessing and affording college at, at our institution, right? So ob the obvious reason to do this and to care about this is because you are, albeit indirectly, supporting your students when you are maintaining compliance with any of the, the federal requirements that you're on the hook for because of participating in federal student aid programs, right? Mm -hmm. But the other thing I would, I would say is that what I do know, where a lot of the complaints originate, is maybe people aren't using this as proactively as we would hope that they use this to make informed decisions about whether to join a certain community as a student or an employee or how to conduct themselves once they're there. But I can tell you that there's no shortage of cases where somebody is victimized in some way on a campus and they tell somebody about that victimization and then they go to the annual security report when it's published the next year and they see a zero in a category of their victimization. And they go, wait a minute, I, I told somebody about this. Why is the you know, institution reporting zero? Or they'll, they'll read the document and see a whole host of things that they were supposed to have been provided and weren't, right? Or certain processes that were supposed to occur. I do believe in those moments, sometimes the systems are being tested because people after the fact uh, whether it's after victimization or just, you know, in response to the annual notification that you provide to your campus communities about your annual security report, people do read it. And, and so one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is not to be defeated in believing that nobody reads this thing. It, it's very likely that few people will read it cover to cover who weren't involved in producing it. But I do believe that different members of your campus community at different times for different reasons are going to access this information and are going to look at statistics and other policies 
and that, that will shape their impressions of the institution and, and what they're doing right and maybe where they have some shortcomings. And so it certainly matters to those people who do read it. I think the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, sometimes, and I certainly felt this as a practitioner, it feels like there's so many boxes to check, right? Like compliance is such a dirty word in student affairs, in, in my experience. And, you know, all, all compliance is doing is setting a, a minimum standards by which institutions will be held accountable. And the standards that we just happen to be talking about today deal with campus safety and, and crime prevention, right? You know, we, these are things that we, we have to do, but there's two ways to look at it. You know, you can look at it as a chore that feels like you're, you're just, you know, spinning your wheels and devoting resources to something that ultimately isn't really contributing to the greater good. Or you can use this as an opportunity to really uh, put your best efforts forward in providing the clearest, most accurate picture of safety and security on your campus. And, you know, find ways to use the information in the report into the work that, that what you're doing. You know, whether it's looking at trend data uh, and starting to ask yourselves questions about wh why are we seeing a, a marked increase over the last couple of years in certain types of, you know, referrals or, or these types of offenses, right? Like, let's, let's drill down into that and, and, and see if we can figure out why that might be happening, right? Do we have some changes in policies or practices that had some unintended consequences? So I, I think as practitioners, we, we need to reframe how we're looking at this because quite honestly, you, you are going to have zero motivation to really be uh, engaged in this and, and trying to work towards enhancing your institution's compliance. If, if you don't see the, the reasons beyond simply keeping the feds off our backs about why what we're doing matters. Mike, I so appreciate your passion for clear compliance. Like it is so clear that this is something that you're just brilliantly passionate about and I really enjoy it. So put on, put on your crystal ball hat for just a second. I know that you won't be able to speak to this entirely, but what changes and shifts are you seeing coming out of Department of Education related to Cleary with the shift in our presidential administration? Yeah, you know, um, that has been a bit of a moving target. You know, if you've been following the, the popular educational press, you know, you, you would have seen at one point that Jerry Falwell Jr. was going to be leading a, a task force focusing on overregulation in education. And, and certainly, uh, you know, that, that would uh, look at higher education and in particular OCR guidance and subregulatory guidance throughout the last administration uh, and just sort of the, the mounting uh, inertia that people are feeling trying to comply with the, the various precepts that are inherent in the Clery Act. You know, now we understand he's going to be a committee member uh, in a broader committee looking at deregulation, and, and that committee has already released a report, uh, and it doesn't really say anything uh, about Clery compliance. I, I think this is one of the things that we have to, to step back and, and think about. You know, hi. <laughs> We, we actually have a director of federal relations for NACOP, and I think he's got one of the hardest jobs right now because there is so many moving targets. But, but he has been meeting with various staffers of key, you know, senators and uh, other, you know, rep representatives in the House who are on committees or who are leading committees. There seems to be a consensus that nobody wants the Clery Act to go away. 
and that there there might be some tweaking that that needs to happen. So something that I believe would be salient to to you, you know, is is there's a requirement, as as you well know, that you know campuses have to track the short stay away trips of you know durations of more than one night, or if you go back to a location from from one year to another, and the institution or student organization is considered to be controlling that via written agreement, you then have to write local law enforcement agencies and request crime statistics. Well, unfortunately, over time, the Department of Education has uh, evolved their thinking to to now make that literally a worldwide requirement. You know, there are some discussions. I think there there might be some opportunities to take some of the overly burdensome aspects of some of the requirements, and that is a frequently cited example in these conversations where maybe there can be a, a relaxation. Maybe there's something that we can do that's more effective than spending hundreds of hours and, and lots of dollars seeking out crime statistics from agencies across the world, most of whom aren't going to respond. And even when they do, you're ultimately reporting a total number in a column uh, of your annual security report. It doesn't actually tell anybody any information about where the offense happened that would give them information that they could use to not go somewhere else in the world where this may have occurred, right? So, you know, there there does seem to be an appetite uh, among our congressional leaders for reducing any overly burdensome or cumbersome requirement. At the same time, I think where there's a lot more energy and attention, but it's also viewed as somewhat of a lightning rod right now, is what to do about Title IX. And, 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 you know, in terms of should during the uh, reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, there's, there's going to be something. W- what that is, I'm not sure. You know, we, we've seen some early glimpses based on some recent public statements that were made at the, the NACUA conference by two, uh, you know, uh, administration officials talking about how they're reconceptualizing the work of OCR and, and what they're going to do and, and not do and how they're going to provide guidance and how they're not going to provide guidance. Fundamentally, though, I think the thing to keep in mind is that it's going to take, uh, you know, truly an act of Congress to change any existing requirements of the Clery Act. And right now, only ones that are on the table are expanding the requirements. You know, CASA has been reintroduced for now the the third Congress. That apparently seems to have the most bipartisan support. And I, I would anticipate we're going to see pieces of CASA be rolled into the higher education reauthorization, which all the staffers are telling us they believe that is a goal that is going to happen this year. We'll see because these committees often also deal with health care. So, you know, I don't know when or how they're going to get there, but this is very much on their radar. You know, and, and, and then we just saw some new hazing legislation that would add reporting requirements to the Clery Act. There's mm-hmm. the Tyler Clemente, you know, Anti-Harassment Act. That would add reporting requirements and responsibilities to the Clery Act, all of which, by the way, would touch student conduct administrators. I believe that while I will stop short of making any very specific predictions about what will or won't happen. My inclination is that we'll probably see more pieces get added to the to the Clery Act anyway. There may be a difference in t- or a relaxation in terms of specific enforcement types or strategies. I do think we're going to see – I, I, I can't imagine that the evidentiary standard in Title IX proceedings is not going to come to a head. As, as we sort of work through the higher ed 
reauthorization. I expect we'll see something about that. You know, we've, we've certainly seen uh, groups obviously pushing for that. You know, I think the American Bar Association just released a report. They'd commissioned a, a task force to, to look at a variety of issues as a direct response to the change in administration uh, post-election. Post so, you know, I, I think we'll definitely see something on those issues. What it entails, I don't know. But I, I maybe expect a little less on the Title IX front in terms of providing a little bit more autonomy or some more regulatory, you know, clarifications rather than through sub-regulatory guidance. But clearly, I can anticipate a couple of changes that, that may relax some of the more problematic and cumbersome aspects. But ultimately, I only see additional requirements continuing to come to fruition. Great. So I want to ask you one very quick question, technical guidance-wise, uh, for our listeners, which is in states that are now legalizing the use of marijuana and medical marijuana, we're seeing, you know, uh, we're in the, the 20s in terms of the states that are kind of looking at these laws. What is the guidance in terms of counting statistics related to marijuana? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So unfortunately, this has evolved in the last six months. We actually had a school in New York contact us because they got verbal guidance from the Campus Safety and Security Help Desk that based on New York law, they should no longer count drug law violations involving marijuana because I believe in New York now a small amount is considered a, an infraction. So it's not a misdemeanor. Uh, so New York has decriminalized marijuana. Over six months of back and forth uh, endlessly with the Department of Education's Help Desk, they've revised their guidance. And so what they now say, what's true as of the date we are recording this podcast, (laughs) is that if your state has gone about the process of decriminalizing by simply changing the penalty structure or, you know, calling it an infraction or an offense instead of a misdemeanor, but, but ultimately the conduct is prohibited within your, your crime code or your penal code then for Clery Act purposes, your state has not decriminalized and you should continue to count violations involving marijuana where, you know, you, you actually have marijuana that's present, you know, and, and you, can, you can regard somebody as unlawfully possessing it. Typically, by the way, a, a common mistake that I see is people will count sort of odor violations where there's no actual marijuana or paraphernalia that is present during the incident. But somebody just says, you know, yeah, I just I just smoked a joint, but it's gone. Those, even though you might run those through your conduct process, are not usually clearly countable. That's a jurisdictional issue. But I haven't been to a jurisdiction yet where the law enforcement there has told me that even a prior admission of recently smoking marijuana would be enough to establish a possession violation in the state. So that's something to check. But um, so right now, the, the the best guidance that we have is look to where this is discussed in your state laws. And and if within the body of your crime code or your penal code, it, it is talking about marijuana and that's where they decriminalized it, you still need to count offenses for Clery Act purposes. The other thing to keep in mind that I think is really important that is, is going to be sneaking up on student conduct administrators uh, in, in short order here is the Clery compliance team uh, that, that really conducts reviews and, and trains all the staff in federal student aid to, to go out and, and conduct program reviews that look at Clery Act compliance, among other items, they're also responsible for now evaluating compliance with the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act. So we're seeing school after school get fined 
you know, the fines that are coming through right now are at $35,000. But as you know, the, the fines have gone up within the last year. We're seeing schools get hit because they're not conducting biennial reviews. And one of the things I think student conduct administrators listening to this podcast need to be attentive to is the biennial review has to be uh, resulting in a written report. And that report has to include certain statistics, including the number of violations for alcohol and, and, and drug uh, violations at your campus, the number and type of sanctions that have been imposed uh, during that two-year period. And part of the biennial review process entails you know, student conduct administrators looking at two years' worth of cases and conducting an analysis to determine if they've been consistently sanctioning for alcohol and drug-related offenses. Because in the biennial review report, you must articulate a conclusion that's supported by, by data uh, as to whether or not you're being consistent. It's one of the primary goals. And so we're seeing campuses really get hit with this left and right. And, uh, you know, when I talk with student conduct administrators, they're often unaware of this. You know, they've, you're, you should be gearing up for your 14th biennial review report in 2018. Most institutions are starting their first. So that's something else, just because marijuana is related to this, under the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act, you are required to prohibit use or possession of marijuana on your campus, even if medical marijuana is allowed in your state or your state has legalized marijuana, you know, under certain circumstances, or you've decriminalized. And be clear, those are three different things, right? But for drug-free schools and community purposes, it doesn't matter. You can't allow any of that on your campus. And, you know, so I just wanted to say that out loud since since you raised the topic. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, so, if folks are interested in getting more training on Cleary, and especially if they can't afford to hire a consulting firm, where do you suggest they go to learn? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to say that they should come to ASCA's 30th conference because ASCA and NACOP are collaborating to offer a full-day pre-conference workshop that I'll be leading that's going to focus in on what student conduct administrators need to know about the statistical reporting obligations of the Cleary Act. And so it's, you know, I, I consider that to be a session, you know, by, by student conduct administrators in some respects, given my background and, and, and my, my research, but it's certainly for student conduct administrators. So there's really no other kind of training out there like it. So I would strongly recommend that if there wasn't already a compelling reason to go and celebrate the 30th anniversary of, of that conference, all the wonderful things that will happen under your leadership this year, Jill, then I, I think just let this be the plus one that might entice you to get there. I'm, I'm thrilled that we're going to be doing that and, and that we've partnered with ASCA for that. Thank you. Mike, what are you reading right now? What's your book recommendation you know, it's funny. I have been carrying a book around with me. Within a couple of days of the election, it uh, it, it occurred to me that uh, I, I maybe have some work to do in terms of understanding pockets of diversity that I have been intellectually neglecting. And so for that reason, I am three quarters of the way through a book by J.D. Vance called Hillbilly Elegy. And uh, so I'm working on that. But I'm never one to read one book at a time, which is why I often don't finish them. So I, I also recently started reading a, a book that came out by a physician-turned-journalist called If Our Bodies Could Talk, A Guide to Operating and Maintaining a Human Body. That's been fairly eye-opening. And on the docket, um, <laughs> and directly related to this subject, is a, a book by uh, a woman named Rebecca Natow, who published a book called Higher Education Rulemaking, The Politics of Creating Regulatory Policy. 
I think that will be an interesting and poignant read, especially during this time, as Congress is gearing up to reauthorize the Higher Education Act, and as we're seeing new administrations take different approaches. Uh, so I'm, I'm eager to dive into that book, but I'm holding myself accountable to finishing at least one of these other two books before I start my third book. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Mike, if listeners want to get a hold of you after hearing this podcast, how can they reach you? Sure. So probably the, the easiest way would be to uh, either call or email me. So uh, my email address is fairly straightforward. It's mdebose, D-E-B-O-W-E-S, at nacop.org. Uh, or you can you can call me. My, my cell phone is also my work line, and that's 717-309-2217. Always, always happy to help answer a quick question or, or talk through an issue. Uh, you know, I have a special appreciation for student conduct administrators having spent, you know, nearly a decade in, in that field before stepping out and uh, doing consulting work and working for NACOP. So uh, you have a special place in my heart. I'd always be happy to help you. Thank you. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can email us at ascapodcast at gmail.com. That's ascapodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at ascapodcast. Thank you so much, Mike, for sharing your viewpoint. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jill. After Dr. DeBose and I concluded our conversation, he had some follow-up thoughts that he sent to me via email and asked me to share with you all. So here are some parting words from Dr. DeBose. Something occurred to me as I reflected on our conversation, and I wish I would have said it out loud during the podcast. You asked, essentially, what's the point of worrying so much about crime statistics if the research shows that very few people tend to read the annual security report and the crime statistics contained therein? I miss an important opportunity to draw a parallel to which that listeners of the podcast might relate. I would ask listeners to reflect on how many of them earnestly believe their student bodies read their code of conduct in their entirety, whether it is distributed annually to students or not. I would guess that very few would say a critical mass of their students do in fact read their code or that they have any data to support that belief. Most students at most schools will never interface with a conduct process. At Old Dominion University, I think the last year I was there, the percentage hovered around 5%. However, I think we could all agree that the failure of students to read the code of conduct doesn't diminish its value or importance. Like the annual security report, the code matters to the people that do read it, as those folks usually have a very specific goal or need when they access the annual security report to include crime statistics, just as a student accused of misconduct has a need to review the document to prepare for their involvement in the process, although we know many of them don't even read it then. So, although only 5% of your student population may interface with the conduct process, the code is really important to the 5% of students, and perhaps the people who refer them, as well as the student conduct administrators who help prepare or revise it. I would submit that, in a similar case, the annual security report is of equal value to those who choose to read it and those who are involved in its compilation. It is intended to be a clearinghouse of sorts for all the safety and security-related purposes and policies and practices in effect at the institution. The transparency it provides to those who avail themselves to it can be as invaluable as students who read the Code of Conduct. Readers of both documents can be better informed as to what is expected of them and what they can expect from the institution. So thank you, Dr. DeBose, for those parting thoughts. 
Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Al Stelnick and Jordan McClendon. Al and Jordan are the ASCA Canadian Region co-coordinators. Al is the founder of the Canadian Region, and they are going to talk to us a bit about Canadian higher education practices as it relates to student conduct. It's also Canadian Thanksgiving next week, so we wish them a happy Thanksgiving in advance. We hope you'll come back and listen. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com.